I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liu, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be discussing the World Resources Institute's recently released report titled Creating a Sustainable Food Future, a menu of solutions to sustainably feed more than 9 billion people by 2050. We've seen several alarming reports this past fall outlining the dramatic effects and dire repercussions of climate change. But one point that I believe tends to be underplayed when talking about our collective sustainability challenges is the fact that food lies behind most environmental and development issues, from deforestation to water scarcity and pollution to malnutrition and more. This report lays out a series of innovative and sobering changes that are necessary to feed the world's booming population without completely destroying the planet over the next 30 years. Joining me on the line to walk through the report is Tim Searchinger, the report's lead author and a research scholar and lecturer at the Woodrow Wilson School of Princeton University. Tim, welcome to the show. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So before we get started, I want to learn a, more, a little bit more about the World Resources Institute and the work that you're doing um, there. So can you tell us about the organization, just briefly? Well, the World Resources Institute is a think tank that focuses on global environmental issues and development. And just to be clear, I'm, I'm a fellow there. I'm also, uh, my, real, my main job is as a research scholar at Princeton University. Okay, and so, but you were the so you were the lead author of this report, correct? And um, is this the first report of its kind? Well, I don't, I don't know, not, probably not, in the sense that there have been, uh, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, puts out reports regularly uh, where it focuses on what is the mitigation potential from. Uh, from agri- from the agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. So there have been other papers and reports. Uh, we do think this report is uh, more comprehensive, deals with the issues in different ways. Uh, so we, we think that basically past efforts have both underestimated the challenge and underestimated the solutions. Wow, those reports have been pretty dire. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how they have underestimated the role of agriculture? So the agricultural sector contributes to climate change in two ways. One is that it, uh, we, as we continue to produce more food for more people, and as more people eat richer diets, uh, we expand agricultural land. And that means clearing forests and uh, woody savannas. 
And those lands hold a lot of carbon. That's what a tree's vegetation, they actually store carbon. Mm-hmm. And when you clear that land, you release the carbon. And roughly 10% or so of all greenhouse gas emissions comes from the continued clearing of forests and actually the release of carbon from something called peatlands, which is something we can perhaps talk about, mm-hmm. that were drained for agriculture. And then another uh, 15% or so, 14%, of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, come from the continuing production process of agriculture. And this includes methane that is a potent greenhouse gas that's released by cattle and released by rice production and from manure of all animals. And it also includes nitrous oxide, which is a gas that's released through the use of nitrogen in agriculture. And it also includes some of the energy that's used to produce things in agriculture, although that's not as big as people think. Mm -hmm. So when you add up all of that, agriculture is around a quarter of all the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And what I think uh, has been underestimated is the scope of trying to produce all the additional food that we need without clearing more forests. So that one of the things we estimate in the report is that even if we more or less maintain the same historical rates uh, by which uh, we produce more food on the same land, by which we increase yields, we are still likely to clear uh, about 600 million hectares of land. That's about an area equal to about twice the size of India or three quarters of the continental United States. Wow. And that's if we just match, that's if we are able to match our historical progress. And so that's a big challenge. There is no solution to climate change mm-hmm. that allows that. We have to basically all solutions to climate change assume that we will have eliminated all land use clearing for, for agricultural expansion. And then on top of that... Um, so, it, so it assumes something that we isn't really even on our radar so much right correct. now. Correct, yeah. Okay. It, 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 and, and then... Um, so, so then when you actually then combine the greenhouse gases that are released by that clearing mm-hmm. and you factor in the fact that we're just going to produce more food and therefore these, these other production emissions are going to go up, mm-hmm. we estimate uh, conservatively that agriculture itself will contribute about 70% of all of the allowable greenhouse gas emissions from all human sources by 2050, which means that a sector of the world economy that produces only about 2% of the gross domestic product of the, of the economic output will be contributing 70% of all the allowable emissions. So there's no way we can solve climate change uh, unless we also reduce agricultural emissions. Two, only 2% of, the, I, of world's GDP from ag? Well, now it's about three, and by then it will probably be about 2%. Wow. All right. And so, so we're talking now just about the production process. It's a little bit more if you include you know, restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And so uh, what that I mean, means is... Yeah, is that, is, that a, is that a big problem? I mean, I mean, where does that... Where are the... What is it now? Now it's like 10%, you said? Well, now it's about 25%. Okay. And it would be 70% of the, all the allowable emissions. And the thing is, yeah, there, that would mean that the 98% of the economy <laughs> produces almost no emissions at all. Right. And so, and so basically, <laughs> yeah, so basically it leaves no room for anything else. Okay. And, and there's just no way we can do that. And so basically we think that we need to 
more or less produce a little bit more than 50% more food by 2050, while simultaneously reducing agricultural greenhouse gas emissions by two-thirds. 50% more. We have to produce 50% more food oh, okay. and reduce the emissions by yeah. two-thirds. Okay, that seems unlikely. But So let's just, taking a step back really quickly, when you say mm-hmm. we think, can you just um, give us a, an idea of the scope, who all was entailed in writing this, pro- in writing this paper? Um, I read that it's an interim report, so are we going to expect another report? Um, and how long did it take? <laughs> So this is actually the final report, but it's the synthesis of the final report and the kind of longer explanation of it, which is about 500 pages with all the background science. That will come out in the spring. Okay. Uh, but this is actually, I think, the 12th of a series of reports. So we actually put out something called the interim findings back in 2013. Uh-huh. So there's a whole series of reports. Okay. And uh, there were... Uh, so although I was the lead author, there were other contributors at the World Resources Institute. The, a key, the key modeler was actually at a, a French uh, research agency. And then we had literally dozens of people contributing different elements of the report over time. And the World Bank is a uh, co-sponsor of the report, as is the UN Environment uh, it used to be called the UN Environment Program. I think they dropped the word, mm-hmm. and the UN Development Program. So, so in a sense, there are a lot of um, contributors to this. Okay, so a, ser- a, a very joint collective effort from experts across many different sectors. Correct. Um, all right. So it seems a little bit like. This seems, let's say, daunting, <laughs> maybe to put it mildly. What are the, in order to get there, um, what are the, you, the report lays out five major areas for action. Can you just run through those quickly and then we'll go into some of them in more detail? Yeah. So one of the things, uh, the first step we need to do is try to hold down the growth and demand. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to have growth uh, because the population is going to grow from about 7 billion to around 10 billion, and because many people are going to rich, uh, eat richer diets as their uh, incomes increase. But there are ways we have to hold down that growth and demand. Mm-hmm. The second bucket is to increase the production of agriculture, on the, of agricultural output on the same land. And so that means we basically have to produce all the food that we need today. We need to produce 50% more food uh, without expanding agricultural land, so you need to produce 50% more food per, per acre. Mm-hmm. Um, the third step, and this gets complicated, we can maybe talk about that more, is you then need to use those increases to save forest. And it doesn't happen automatically because there's, in addition to expanding agricultural land, you have shifts in agricultural land, which are leading to the loss of tropical forests, which are very carbon-rich and biologically diverse. So you need to use those increases in yield to save agricultural land by linking the two, and we can talk about that more. Mm -hmm. The fourth is uh, basically improving uh, fisheries, and that mainly means um, eliminating overfishing, which is depleting wild fish catch. But the vast majority, virtually all the new fish, in fact, more than all the new fish Mm -hmm. that we're going to consume have to come from aquaculture. Mm -hmm. So that means we have to make aquaculture uh, more efficient and more sustainable. And then the the last is a whole series of production changes that actually reduce these greenhouse gas emissions emitted from the production process. 
And some of that will gain just by increasing productivity. When you, when you make agriculture more efficient, you get more output per, per acre, per animal, per uh, kilogram of nitrogen, you reduce these emissions. But there are specific things that also have to be done. And some of those we know today, like different ways of managing rice, and some of those researchers have identified as promising opportunities that then need to be explored. So it's that five bucket. So we call them five courses mm-hmm. uh, on the, of a menu, which then breaks down into 22 different menu items. Uh, but they're organized in those five courses. Okay. So, uh, so talking about the first one, curtailing growth and the demand for food, there are a few recommendations here that we have certainly seen before time and time again. Um, but then there were a couple of other ones, and, and I want to talk about those, um, like the reducing our consumption of meat and um, and also food waste, and we'll get into those in a minute. But one of the things that struck me was the need to eliminate obesity and half the number of overweight people um, up until, well, they, I mean, I think, you know, reduce the amount of people who are obese and, um, you know, the effects of doing so. Can you tell us a little bit more about what, why um, this is a recommendation and, and how it would work? Yeah, well, so first of all, we're, we actually don't focus on that per se. We, we actually explore that. Right, you explore And we it. look at this question of what would happen if you had a massive elimination of obesity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and because that, of course, would have enormous health benefits. But it wouldn't, even if we imagined a world where we basically eliminated, uh, um, uh, or we cut obesity in half, it would not have that surprisingly small effect on the, on the, uh, the challenge of feeding the world while reducing greenhouse gas emissions and without land use. You get some. Uh, but it's not, we ended up deciding that while that was very important from a public health standpoint, and lots of people are working on that, because we actually have more obese people in the world today than we do uh, who are um, Food hungry. Insecure. yeah. Uh, and that continues to grow. Uh, and so from a public health standpoint, that's very important. But from a pure um, environmental standpoint, we didn't think that the effect we were going to be able to have on that was was big enough to really focus on as an environmental strategy, and that was the driving f- factor. That was so. That was why we didn't. So we 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 modeled it, and it's surprising. And the reason is this: is that even uh, people who are obese uh, probably eat something on the order of. Uh, 600 calories or so more than they should, than, 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 not than they should, than someone who isn't obese. What happens is, is if people who become obese actually need to eat more to kind of maintain their uh, metabolism. Hmm. And so even if you kind of magically eliminated obesity uh, all across the world, it's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have as big an effect as, as, um, uh, you might think. Mm-hmm. So instead, what we did was we actually focused on, on something that we thought was doable. And, and this is reducing essentially beef consumption and mm-hmm. lamb consumption. So it and, turns and out lamb? that lamb? Beef and lamb. So, yeah, so oh. basically ruminants. So, right. so livestock uh, go into two categories. One is the category called ruminants, which are basically uh, goats, um, sheep, and and cattle, and uh, they eat grass, and they eat grassy things, uh, and they have uh, stomachs to do that. 
but there are two things that result from that. One is that they produce methane. So in, in, in terms of digesting that, that grass and these fiber substances, they rely on um, various forms of microorganisms in their stomachs that produce methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas. And the second is they're not very efficient at doing that. And so they produce dramatically more uh, greenhouse gas emissions and require dramatically more land than are needed to produce even uh, chicken and pork. And so, uh, and, and unfortunately, so people say, well, what about, the, we have this natural grazing land and that, they're just using that and that's okay. And that's true. But we long ago used up basically all of our natural grazing land. And so 40% of the world's grazing land today is land that was uh, naturally forested or heavily wooded. And as we increase our global consumption of, of, these, of these meats and, and dairy too, uh, the new land that's being cleared for that is actually mainly tropical forests and so this is internationally speaking, because when I think of um, when I think of the beef industry in the U.S., I think a big problem is that they're not, in fact, grazed. <laughs> a lot of them are raised, of course, in these, you know, CAFOs, and they really don't get access to pasture. Well, there are all kinds of different issues. So here we're just focusing on the greenhouse gas emissions okay. and, and, and the land use requirements, let's put it that way. Okay. And we're thinking of this as a global challenge. Right. Right. So basically, if, you're not, if you have a certain demand for beef and you're not producing it in one place, you're going to have to produce it in another, like given the same demand. Yeah. And so the, question, so the first thing we, uh, we are looking at is this question of reducing the total... Uh, uh, the total demand for um, for beef, mm-hmm. because no matter how it's produced, it's still going to use a tremendous amount of land, and it's going to produce a tremendous number of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So here's here's a good example: is number. Uh, so typically, uh, it takes something between fifty and a hundred um, uh, c- uh, calories of feed to produce one calorie of beef. And so that's even, um, you know, five to ten times what it does to, to feed, uh, to produce uh, chicken or pork. And then, then plus you have the methane. So, this, so one of the things, we're not saying eliminate your consumption. Eliminate, uh, everyone has to eliminate their consumption. But if the predictions are uh, globally that the world will demand uh, almost 90% more uh, beef and lamb mm-hmm. and goat meat by 2050, well, that is a huge challenge. We're using two-thirds of all of, the agri- of our agricultural land to produce ruminant meat and dairy. Is that currently? And currently currently we are? Two-thirds. Okay. Two-thirds. So, so twice, think about this. Twice as much uh, 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 grazing land is twice as much global land as cropland. Wow. And, and as I said, people think about these native grazing lands like we have in the West, in the United States, but 40% and the most productive of those grazing lands, the ones that are wet enough to produce a lot of grass and therefore a lot of beef or dairy, 40% of that was naturally forested. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to stop clearing more land for that. And the two basic ways of trying to do that are, one, we have to hold down our consumption of, of, of beef uh, and, uh, and lamb. And two, we have to really improve the quality of grazing management 
uh, around the world. And so, uh, so, that's, so we end up saying, and one of the surprising things is that very few people actually eat a lot of beef and lamb. Well, and worldwide. Worldwide, yes, yes. Yes, Exactly. So we eat a, t- a ton in the U.S. Yeah. and people in Russia and in Europe and actually Argentina and Brazil. Mm-hmm. But, even, but in 2050, even with this, what we expect, a 90% increase in demand for beef, only about 20% of those people, about 2 billion people, would we expect to eat a lot of beef and lamb. So what we're basically saying is that 20%, on average, per person, has to eat about 40% less. And if that happens, and we'd make tremendous improvements in the quality of grazing, where we can physically do that around the world, then we can avoid clearing more forest. But we need to do both of those things. And, and so, so, so that's, the, that's the challenge. Right. Um, now, the reason we have some hope that that's doable is that Actually, beef and lamb in the American diet generates 40 to 50 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions, uses 40 to 50 percent of the land, but it only supplies about 3 percent of the calories. Right. And so, so it's not a huge change in diet, really. And also, Americans... But that's, uh, that's from a calorie perspective, which I think this, this idea is sort of lost in translation for people who are not, um, like in the weeds, either from a public health standpoint, environmental standpoint. So what does that really mean, like calories? Because I read a recent report, uh, article in Bloomberg that said that um, Americans are set to eat more meat in 2018 than ever before. And then this includes poultry, though, but it says, like, on average, in 2018, consumer will have, will eat 222.2 pounds of red meat and poultry this year. I mean, so that is like... (laughs) <laughs> seems so so this is part of the cha- this is the huge challenge exactly because the, in the real world as much as we do have uh, some people choosing to eat less we have uh, many people eating more mm-hmm. and uh but in the US even now uh the average american consumes about a third less beef uh than the average american consumed in the 1960s and what's happened instead is they basically supplemented uh, with chicken. Okay. And so there's all kinds of issues associated with that. But from a pure resource and kind of greenhouse gas and land use standpoint, that's actually good. Mm-hmm. And, and so while we encourage, we, we, are, we think it's important that uh, Americans moderate their diets for all animal products, including dairy, by maybe about 10%. Because that's really just necessary to allow 6 billion people in the world in 2050 to eat a little bit more. Because six, even in 2050, with our projections, 6 billion people still eat less than half, or more like a third, of the total animal products that Americans eat today. And so, as a result, to give them a little bit more space, we need to hold down our consumption of animal products somewhat. Right. But that's just to kind of basically stay even. Yeah. And so what we really need to do, that we think the opportunity here is to significantly cut our consumption of beef. So basically that means instead of having three servings on average of beef and lamb per week, we have one and a half. Okay. And, and so how can we do that? Well, probably realistically. I mean, some people may just change uh, their behavior. But realistically, for a lot of other people, they're going to need something that they find roughly the same. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is where we actually think there is hope because uh, there has been enormous improvement in the quality of these um, kind of hamburger substitutes. Mm-hmm. Like plant-based, and plant-based Exactly, uh, exactly. Plant-based, plant-based yeah. meats and with... Whatever that means. <laughs> right, well, you get it with team. They really, yeah. They're really good. Yeah, know? they are, yeah. And, and they're getting close. And the point is not only that they will continue to improve, we think, uh, but that they could be a lot cheaper than beef. Oh. So uh, there's no reason once uh, people have really figured out how to do this and they're producing it in volume that they won't be a, a much, much cheaper than beef. We- and so... Okay, ahead, sorry. sorry. Oh, it, well, I, I mean, I, my question is, what is the role? So certainly, and with all, with all these categories, my, my, I have a question of like, what is the role of technology and innovation? But with this specifically, it seems this point on reducing meat consumption, it seems like relying on plant-based meats is going to be very important, um, you know, to, to really like increase the consumption of those products. My question. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. But my question is, look, what is the role of government, right? Because, I mean, what right. is the role of regulation from the standpoint, I imagine you can make some changes from like an institutional purchasing perspective with like the school meals program, for instance. But in terms of regulation, what else does that look like? Yeah, I think that's right. I think for now, the role of government should probably be in things like using its purchasing power to, to, to achieve this. It should also, in some areas, be funding uh, research. Now, probably in the case of, of plant-based meats, we don't really need the government to be involved. Mm-hmm. And the reason is there is a niche market of people who are, for various reasons, health reasons or um, environmental reasons or uh, concern for animal health, who have a market. And so, the, so, so there is a reason for businesses to innovate in that area. But there are other places where there, there isn't the same uh, type of, of market. And so, um, for example, when we go back to the greenhouse gas emissions, we have this fundamental challenge. We're still going to have a lot of cows. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, there's no, there's, even in our scenario, the, the world has 30 or 40% more beef than it, it, it does today. And then we have all these dairy cows, too. Mm-hmm. And so they're producing all this methane. And yeah. so there is a feed additive that one company has come up with that seems to reduce this methane by about 30%. And it's pretty cheap, uh, and, and it could probably get better, uh, and no one is using it. <laughs> Why don't they use it? Well, because it basically, at this point, doesn't seem to boost productivity. It might, but it mainly just reduces this greenhouse gas. Right. And so we need the government to basically require that everybody do that. Uh, and if you have a market, uh, if the government basically has a rule that says you have to do these things when they get cheap enough, mm-hmm. then industry will have an incentive uh, to innovate. So that's an example, and we can talk about that more. So yeah. there are certainly opportunities. The other thing is that in other areas um, of holding down demand, the government has a big role to play, I think. So, for example... Um, one of the biggest problems we face is almost entirely government created, which is this huge increase in demand for biofuels. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just biofuels. Right now they use food, they use crops. Uh, some people want them to use energy crops, but if those, those energy crops still demand productive land to produce them reasonably well, and we only have so much land in the world. There's a fixed amount of land, mm-hmm. and every acre of land that you're using to grow uh, these 
uh, bioenergy uh, crops uh, is an acre of land that isn't otherwise producing food or isn't storing carbon in the form of forests. And so their potential competition from this is enormous. Right. And uh, just to give you some idea, if we wanted to produce just 10% of the world's transportation fuel in 2050, which would be only 2% of the total energy supply, we would require an amount of energy in crops that's equal to 30% of all the crops produced in the world today. So, so 30% of all the world's crop energy could only supply 2% of the energy that uh, we're going to use in 2050. So the potential competition is enormous. And we go through in the paper how we think that the belief in this biofuels was basically based on a math error. And, uh, based on a, it, what? on a what? On a math error. Uh, okay. I know it sounds kind of hard huh. to believe, but basically, if you think about this question... Let me, let me just tell you, as somebody who is really terrible at math, I completely believe it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's almost a conceptual error. It's basically a conceptual error, which is that they basically counted um, the same uh, land twice. Okay. That, you know, that basically you're assuming that the same land that can produce... Um, food for cars can simultaneously be producing uh, either food for people right. or, or, or forests. And the, and the mistake that people have, it's a little subtle, but the mistake is that people think that something that's renewable is free, right? You oh. have, sure, I use this crop, but next year I get another crop, I get the crop after that. So I can use it, it doesn't cost any, anything. And if you want to realize why that's a problem, think about your paycheck. Mm-hmm. So you get a paycheck every couple of weeks or a month, uh, and it's renewable in the same way that plant growth is. But if I said to you, hey, give me your paycheck, yeah, it's not going to cost you anything because you're going to get another paycheck next month. Mm-hmm. You'd start thinking about that, yeah. and you'd realize that you're if like, you're... like, no. No. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Why, I don't want to do that. And why? Because you're using your paycheck for food. You're using it for rent. You're hopefully putting some in the bank. And if you use your paycheck for... Uh, to give to me, let's say, buy energy or uh, I can go drive my car or something, you're not using it for, uh, for these other purposes. And that same is true of plant growth. If we use it for energy, we're not using it for these other purposes, and we desperately need it for these other purposes. But yet so many other countries have endorsed the, the use of biofuels. Um, so what will that take kind of internationally to, to curb the production well, it, it, it takes a bunch of governments, but most cases, governments followed the U.S. lead. We were the first to really get out big, big time in, uh, on this. So the U.S. could probably solve this a lot. And there are problems in the accounting rules of how you count whether somebody, um, whether a country is uh, credited with reducing greenhouse gas emissions that are, that are also basically need to be fixed. Right now, when you burn... Uh, a biofuel, uh, the international rules say that all that carbon dioxide being emitted by burning that don't count on the grounds that it's basically offset by the plant growth. It's, right. it's renewable. And that's not true. It's real carbon, real carbon dioxide coming, coming out of the tailpipe of your car. And just because renewable, as we said, um, doesn't, doesn't mean that it doesn't count. And the reason basically is this, that if you want to count plant growth as somehow or other offsetting, somehow balancing out 
the carbon dioxide emitted by burning plants, uh, you have to have additional plant growth. If that plant growth was going to occur anyway, it was already going to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Just burning it doesn't give you any credit. And that right. was really the error, that basically only additional plant growth. So if you really did have an acre of completely bare land and you used it to grow plants and then you burn those and you wouldn't grow plants there anyway, if, if not to burn them, that would be a greenhouse gas reduction because you're actually ge- you're basically absorbing more carbon to, ju- to kind of balance out the carbon you release when you burn it. Right. But most of the time we're not doing that. We're just taking crops that we're going to grow anyway. Okay. And, and, we're, and we're just burning those. And that basically has to come at the expense of something else. And it either comes at the expense of food or it comes at the expense somewhere of having to clear more land. And neither are great options. Exactly. Yes. Both are yes. unacceptable options. Because unfortunately, that's not a good way to, to kind of, let's say, reduce your diet. I mean, yeah. the, the, we, we, we in America are very insensitive to the price of food paid to farmers. First of all, it's just a small part of the actual price we pay when we get to grocery stores. Yep. And for most of us, food is still not a huge part of our total budget. So when prices go up, the people globally, the people who are most affected are the world's poor, the people earning $1 or $2 a day. And so the idea that um, we – so we sh- one way we don't want to curb um, overconsumption is by not producing enough and raising prices yeah. because unfortunately in that case the people who consume less are not the over consumers they're the people who are already under consuming and they're going to be the most effective okay we want we need to take a really quick commercial break um and hear a word from our sponsors but we will have more in just a minute so stay tuned next year heritage radio network is turning 10 For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio, for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. And we're back with Tim Searchinger, a lead author of the recently released report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future, um, from the World Resources Institute. All right. So when we, before we went to break, uh, Tim, we were, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the need to increase production. And my question all along throughout this, and this is at least true for the, for the U.S., is that we, over the past 30 years with the industrialized, the rise of the industrialized food system, have gotten r- really, really good, or so I thought, at producing more and more, you know, higher and higher yields on the same amount of space, be that with um, corn, for instance, and also beef production, you know, is what my understanding was. And so I guess I'm a little bit confused as to why we need to, you know, why this is like such a huge part of the the report's recommendation. Well, the basic story is that that's true. And if, if the world hadn't become more efficient, 
we'd have almost no forest left today. But the real problem is we're still going to need yet 50% more food globally, not because of demand in the U.S., but because of demand growing around the world. The population is uh, on a course to grow from 7 to 10 billion. And even or just as importantly, we think we're going to have fewer really desperately poor people. And when people even enter kind of the bottom of the middle class, they start eating more animal products, they start eating more vegetable oil, vegetables. All of those things actually require more resources than just eating, let's say, cornmeal. And so when you put those together, we need more than 50% more, at least we are on a course to consume more than 50% more food by 2050. And so that is a huge challenge. We did an analysis that said, what if you tried to meet that demand Mm -hmm. just using today's farms? So no changes in production system. You just use the farms we have around the world today. And the short answer is that, that the agriculture sector by itself would eliminate most of the world's remaining forests in the temperate and tropical zone. Mm-hmm. And the greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture would be twice those allowable from all human sources. So basically, if we did nothing, we just didn't change our farms at all, by itself, agriculture will more or less destroy the planet. Right, right. That was going to say. And, and so, so the good news is that we do have this history of making productivity gains. Uh, but the bad news is even if we match those historical levels globally, that's still nowhere near enough. Okay. So we need to do even better. Even better. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the challenge is that uh, some of those methods that we use, in fact, a lot of those methods that we use to improve agriculture have their own costs. Mm-hmm. And they, some of them are uh, cause pollution, uh, water pollution and air pollution, health concerns with uh, manure and pesticides, and uh, also greenhouse gas emissions. They cause their own sources of greenhouse gas emissions, like using nitrogen fertilizer mm-hmm. and these big manure pots, so, uh, ponds. So we need to actually do better at that, too. We have to somehow produce all this additional food we have to do it on the same land, and we have to simultaneously address these pollution challenges. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you then have to combine all of these, these different steps. Now, right. the good news, I mean, it begins to sound overwhelming, and, 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 it, and, it, and it, it, is. Is, it is to some extent. But the, so there were times when we were writing the report that, you know, we wanted to jump off a cliff. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, the, yeah. but then, it, one of the interesting things is as you start exploring the solutions, you realize that... That they're there. They're there, yeah. or that in some cases, researchers have identified... Researchers spending remarkably small amounts of money have come up with really promising uh, opportunities. And also that most of the things we're talking about are beneficial. So, for example, even in the care we were talking about, about diets, uh, actually one of the things that uh, we now, scientists are now pretty confident about, is that one of the real health concerns is red meat. It's, 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 it's a carcinogen. Yep. And, it, and it, more and more evidence is coming out about that. So if we could curb our consumption of red meat, there are huge health benefits. And you can switch to other things that are very tasty and good. Yeah. Um, and, and then similarly, we have... People say, well, what about population? Well, yes. pop- and, and- can we curb population? And that's important, too. But, but it turns out 
that the story is that in the vast majority of the world, uh, fertility rates, the number of uh, children per mother, has already uh, plummeted close to replacement rates or even below. Right. And so the, you know what? I, I want to talk about fer- fertility um, in just a minute. But before we kind of uh, move on to that, because there are, I have a few questions about like the the role specifically of women, um, okay. you know, in, in really creating a more sustainable food system. But before we get to that, I, I want to ask a question about GMOs. And I'm like, okay. I'm like annoyed because <laughs> this is an issue. I don't understand why the kind of food advocacy community has really um, taken a hold of and like vilified to the extent like I don't, I really don't understand like why this is the issue basically. But um, yeah. yeah. So I, what is the role? You talk a little bit about that in the report. So what is the role of GMOs uh, in creating a more sustainable food system because this is something that proponents often say like, well, we need GMOs in order to right. feed the planet moving forward. Like, is this true in your in your findings? Yes-ish, <laughs> but maybe not. So okay. here, here, here's, here's, Yes-ish. here's the thing. <laughs> so, uh, so people, the vast majority of the discussion about GMOs focuses on the GMOs that we have today. Mm-hmm. And we basically have two kinds of GMOs today, are the overwhelming ones we've got. One, is, And they're both designed essentially to make it easier to deal with pests. So one is you... You make uh, it, uh, or uh, you make it. Uh, you have these uh, glyphosate Roundup-ready crops, which basically means you can spray them with Roundup, uh, and you can kill all the weeds, and you without killing the crop. And there's an argument that that makes things easier. There's an argument that that is particularly helpful in some some places in the developing world. But there's also a pretty good argument that by doing that we actually are just going to end up with more pesticides because we do it so much that we end up encouraging weed resistance, which is emerging. So you can have an argument about that. Mm -hmm. And there's similarly an argument about the one other uh, major uh, GMO, which is BT corn, BT cotton. This is something that has a natural pesticide that helps particularly deal with with worms and things. And, and, And you can argue again, is it going to lead to, is it leading to more resistance. So you can argue about that. And then, of course, people also don't like the fact that they're more expensive and that you have all this additional power going to big seed companies. So Wait, so the, the seeds are more expensive. The seeds are more yeah. expensive. Yeah. So you can argue about that. But, but here's what you, we don't think you should argue about, which is that these technologies can do a lot more. Mm-hmm. So there are examples where, we, increasing numbers of examples, where you have diseases hitting crops that can completely wipe them out or have huge effects. And the only way someone can figure out to keep them from being essentially wiped out uh, is to breed in some new gene. Mm-hmm. And, and to resist that seems a little bit crazy. I think people don't realize how enormously variable genes are, how much we've played with the genes of every uh, crop we have today through, quote, conventional breeding, uh, sometimes which c- encourages deliberate mutations, we're, we're already so heavily into manipulating the DNA of crops that just because we're doing it in one particular way rather than another shouldn't be the, the, key, the key factor. Right. And, and then ha- having said all of that, it's also the case that most of the crop improvement does not come, has not come from uh, genetic engineering. Most of it comes from the 
day-to-day or the year-to-year process of taking two good performing crops and rebreeding them and kind of continuing to evolve. And so, so, so so the genetic engineering argument can also be exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and In terms and of so, its importance. In terms of its importance. Yeah. So, so actually, we, I wrote a, um, an installment in the series even, I think, four or five years ago, where I basically said that, that it's got real value, but it can also be exaggerated. But now, in the interim, something else has happened, and that is that there has been this revolution of a new of, of genetic engineering through this new CRISPR technology. Okay. And and so there are now new techniques that basically didn't exist before 2012, 2013 that make it really easy to insert new genes wherever you want in a plant, to, not just that, but to turn genes on and off within a plant and even to affect the parts of the DNA that aren't genes but have big effects. And these are multiplying. They're becoming more and more. It's just so much easier than it used to be. And then on top of that, we have this revolution in just the ability to identify uh, the genes of plants. Uh, It's so much cheaper now, right? We didn't used to have it at all. Most plant breeding historically was basically doing something blind. You didn't really know what you were changing. You were just trying to change something. Mm -hmm. And now you can know. So we do think that we put all of this together. And sorry, is the, the CRISPR technology, is that a form of genetic modification? It is, but sometimes you call it, uh, it, it, it in the sense that sometimes you can insert a new gene precisely where you want, mm-hmm. but you can also just turn existing genes on and off. Okay. And this is a huge issue in almost all this research is for health, and there are real issues with CRISPR too, right? There was this issue of whether you're kind of genetically going to engineer new babies. Yes, well, that... And, I mean, and, that. and it could, could, a, could a terrorist child kind of create a, a disease and uh, unleash it on the world. So there are real issues there, but those are the downsides. And, yeah. and, and the good side is, and they're real, and the technology is here, we have to figure out how to deal with that. But that is, the, the, the danger of, of, of kind of doing the, the plant breeding wrong is a tiny, 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 tiny part of that larger danger. And meanwhile, it has very large potential. So I think that the issue is we have to be open to all forms Mm -hmm. of plant breeding, and, and, uh, and they don't have to all be dominated by big companies. These techniques can be used in the public sector and are used in the public sector. Uh, but the real point is this, is that we need more resources to go into plant breeding. Because uh, you were talking about the challenge, and yes, we, we, we increase the, these yields. Well, a lot of the way we increase yields is we just now dump a ton of fertilizer on plants. Right, yeah. And we doubled irrigation globally. And we can't do that anymore. I mean, there's just, the, the, you've got saturation fertilizer for most of the world. There's no more water left to irrigate in almost anywhere in the world. And so we can't use that to increase yields. And the way we have to increase yields is by farming smarter. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you farm smarter is with better and better breeding, because uh, that could also help you deal with diseases, deal with different types of soil compounds, and also some of the environmental challenges, right. which is that we can actually breed Reduce. in better ways of, of improving nitrogen. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so, so basically, we need a much a larger commitment to these to this funding. There, are, I mean, we there's a total of. We think $50 million in the world 
50, I'm sorry, $50 billion in the world, the entire world spent on all agricultural research. I mean, it's just an amazingly small amount of money. Uh, can you put that into context, though? Because that, that, I mean, to me, I'm like, that seems like a lot of money. So, um, it, like, compared to, I don't know, some other kind of technological advancement. Well, I, I, I'll have to search for that, I guess. Uh, but, you know... But you're it, saying it's very small. Yeah, it's a, it's a considering the challenges uh, that the, the world faces. Right. Uh, it's really a small... And that's all. That's not just prime breeding. That's anything to do with agriculture. And uh, and that's all everywhere in the world. Yeah. Right. That and all the different countries in the world. Yeah, that's just. And and so it um, it's really modest and uh, and there's so, a need to greatly to to really ramp that up. Ramp globally. that up, and yeah. that's true in all of these areas. Because one of the messages here is that we have this huge challenge, but it gets a fraction of the attention that the energy challenge faces yeah. receives, for example. Which I you know I think you could probably argue doesn't even get enough attention in and of itself. Of course. Um, okay, so we are going to, I'm going to have to leave it there for now, but as I mentioned in the introduction, this is going to be, this was just the first installment of a conversation with Tim. Um, and so we, our next episode, we are going to be talking about all the rest of it, um, all 500 pages, <laughs> the rest of it. Um, and I also, you know, some of the points, I definitely want to want to talk about the role of women um, in agriculture and then, you know, more broadly. So lots more to discuss. And um, I hope everybody tunes in to the next installment. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to um, let everybody know that we're in the midst of uh, Heritage's end of year fun drive. Um, I am asking all my fabulous listeners to consider becoming an HRN member. You can do so um, by going to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Um, this will really help in our goal of raising $150,000 by December 31st, which will go to keeping shows like Eating Matters um, on air. So think about it. Um, all right. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN Network web HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.